Welcome to Real to Real with Michelle and Peter. Hi, Steve. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, guys. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Now, you have a lot of stuff to tell us about. So I don't know where you want to begin, but we're going to kind of let you take the floor to make sure that we don't miss anything because you do have a lot. So well, I, I am a movie guy. I, I think uh, probably inspired by my parents who were big moviegoers, but uh, for about six years from the ages of, I'd say five to 11, I lived across the street from a movie theater. So I, how could that not influence me? I was at the movies two and three times a week for six years during formative age, you know, formative age when, you know, they were running double feature science fiction movies on Saturday afternoons for the kiddies. We called them kitty matinees in those days. And I was definitely a kitty. <laughs> See, and- what was the very first movie you remember seeing? It was one I saw with my parents. I think they took me to see South Pacific. And the only thing I remember is Ray Walston, who you remember from My Favorite Martian. He was in a life preserver witnessing this air battle in the South Pacific. And uh, it was pretty funny stuff. You know, Uh, I think he had zinc oxide on his nose and he was kind of enjoying himself. (laughs) I got to work with Ray Walston about 30 years later. uh, I worked on a, a, a movie called Rad, which is uh, a BMX bicycle movie. Oh, nice. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> oh, you're fine. That's very cool. But it's, you know, it's, I, I grew up in movies. I love movies. I've written about movies. I'm now writing movies. I've produced movies. I've promoted movies. I've publicized movies. I guess movies are my thing there are worse things to have because we love movies too. Like we love, I don't, I don't know if we love them as much as you. I don't think we're at that level, but we love movies. So, <laughs> well, if you, if you grow up in Southern California and have any type of connection to movies, then you get involved in it very early. It's like, uh, I guess if I was living in Iowa in, you know, in rural Iowa, I'm sure I would know what a thresher was. <laughs> I know of them. Uh, I don't actually know what a thresher is. I want to say, is that something to do with corn? You know, I, I have I have no idea because I'm not from Iowa. Point proven. We know snowblowers in Syracuse, New York. That's what we that know. That's the truth. There you go. There you go. So you can see, I don't know much about snowblowers. Um, in fact, I worked on a movie in Montreal in the summer once. It was my movie. I actually have produced it. So it's a true World War II drama called Silent Night. And, you know, Montreal is Quebec. It's very cold there in the winter, but we were shooting in the summer. So we had to actually make snow. So these big dump trucks would drive out with these huge blocks of ice and they would be put into a crusher. And there was a guy with a hose creating the ground cover for this whole World War II scene with real snow. It was pretty amazing to watch. So after, so you're, you're a small child, you're going to the movies all the time. Um, and then fast forward to, did you go to college for movies or for filmmaking? Well, I went to UCLA as a history major because I always loved history. 
And then I started writing for the Daily Bruin. Uh, I was one of their staff writers. I started interviewing, kind of perfecting my interviewing skills. So I was kind of a you know history major, journalism minor. And then when I got out of school, uh, for about two minutes, I thought about TV journalism, but the idea of sticking microphones in people's faces was not appealing to me. So I, I just started to write my first book, which was called Combat Films, American Realism, 1945 to 1970. It was kind of my film school. I went around for two years interviewing filmmakers who made the great World War II movies. Everyone from John Sturgis, who directed The Great Escape, Franklin Schaffner, who directed Patton, Harry Brown, who wrote A Walk in the Sun, Robert Pyrosh, who wrote Battleground. So I learned behind the scenes stories on how these movies were made. And I kind of, uh, I kind of got into that whole concept of forensic studying of film, just like I had studied in history class. And at the same time, I became friendly with Fred Clark, who was the editor of Cinefantastic magazine in Chicago. And I started doing the same kind of research on movies like The Day the Earth Stood Still, Forbidden Planet, War of the Worlds, movies I had seen on those Saturday morning double features. So uh, I got a little bit of a reputation. I started to get fan letters. So I knew I was on to something, but I could never make a living doing any of this. It was kind of like... Um, you know, kind of like hobby money, you know, you'd make a few bucks here. I mean, my first book, Combat Films, I, I spent three years on it. I sold 500 copies. That's not a career. So uh, what happened was I became a publicist. You know, the PR firms in Los Angeles that ha handled entertainment accounts, they needed writers who could write biographies, pitch letters, press kits. And so I found a perfect place for me to take my enthusiasm for movies and promote everybody else's movies. And I did this for about 25 years. That was oh, kind wow. of my, you know, that's how I made a living while I was pursuing all of my creative pursuits. It's a lot of fun too, that you were able to take a lot of people go to college and they'll get degrees and they don't necessarily get to weave those into their passions. And the fact that you were able to take your, um, the major in history, history and then the minor in journalism. And you were able to adapt that into your passion for movies to, to in fact make a career out of it. Cause I'm sure the journalism helped su substantially uh, being a promoter, uh, being a promoter. It did. It did. Uh, I, I've learned all along that if you have any kind of writing skill, you are separated from the pack because very few people are good writers. And in the film business, um, they would attract people who had great personalities and who could handle actors on the set, but sometimes they couldn't write a sentence to save their lives. So sometimes I'd be called in to, to you know, to save the day and write <laughs> press kits and do things like that. And then I learned how to deal with people, uh, you know, on the set, being on a film set, when you walk on a film set, it seems very dull. You know, you don't know anybody. They're, they're standing around what seems like hours not doing much they finally do a scene and then they break for three more hours but when you actually work actually work on the show it's very organic there's a lot going on that the public doesn't see it's a lot of uh interaction between the various crew and then of course the actors you don't you don't just walk on a set and walk up to uh you know russell crowe and say hi russell how you doing you know these are closed arenas and if you want to do a press interview and that's my responsibility to handle the press it has to be made by appointment and then you escort these people around i mean one of my first jobs 
in the business was taking entertainment tonight around to interview people and they have a limited window. And then of course you have to work organically with the crew. For instance, um, my teammate on a typical film production would be the still photographer because we're kind of documenting the history of the movie. And invariably the still photographer does not get great placement when the crew's standing around the camera, which would be the ideal place to shoot stills. So, uh, you know, the makeup artist there, the hairstylist there, script supervisors there, assistant directors there, everybody's wedged into a tight place around the camera, which is the perfect place to get the shot. So I... I learned that if my photographer was to get the good shot, I had to walk up to the AD and say, can I have the set for 30 seconds? So rather than break down and everybody goes to all the four directions, I, I would actually get the set for 30 seconds. All those people would clear out from behind camera and the still photographer could get a great two shot of the actors or whatever the shot was. So I learned to be really... Um, uh, dynamic on the set. I wasn't just a guy sitting in the office, you know, fielding phone calls. I worked very closely with the crew and I got to know literally everybody, you know, because one of the things about being a PR person is you never know when somebody, when you have to go to somebody for help, whether it's to leave the lights on, to get some extra makeup, a hair, hair help for an interview. And if they don't know you, if you've never bothered to introduce yourself or say hi to them or respect them, they won't help you. And I, it happened sense. to me it happened to me once where there was one guy I forgot to ask, and we, I think, one, like an Entertainment Tonight crew was on the set ready to do interviews, and they shut down all the lights. And when I went to him, I said, "Can you turn like? No, sorry, I'm going to lunch." So you know, you learn things like that, bumping your head. For sure. Uh, wow. That's interesting. It, it's it's interesting too that I would think I, I think I would be intimidated because the. For me, my, my opinion would be, all right, you're, you're not allowed to talk to anybody, uh, <laughs> avoid eye contact, be, I would, I would think that would be the respectful, maybe I'm, it's just me being scared, but I would, I would try to sit in the shadows, I think. Be the wallflower. A little bit, because everyone's super busy and they all have jobs and it seems like it's a, it can be a high stress environment too. Um, I think, I think it might oh, be it about can, timing. It, yeah. It can be because not all actors are keen on doing press. I remember um, working with John Voight on a little film called Desert Bloom. It was a kind of a film that didn't get much play in the theaters, but it was a period piece taking place in Las Vegas in 1951 during the first nuclear tests. These were in the days where people packed a picnic lunch and they would go out to a hillside and watch the A-bombs drop, having no idea what they were watching. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you imagine? So, um, Not at all. so I, I, I had to do a video interview for the electronic press kit for John Voight and I had to wait eight hours for him. It just, he just wouldn't break away to take 10 minutes to do his interview. They're locked into their characters. They're mm -hmm. locked into working with a director to achieve this performance. Literally the last thing they want to do is break, you know, break it and go talk about the movie. So sometimes I'd have to just wait all day and hope and pray that he would come to me at the um, at the last minute. I was working. I, I worked for Showtime for 10 years. I some actors, you know, they, they just they're so intense on the set. You don't want to ask them anything because you think they're going to bite your head off. And one of those guys who's very professional, by the way, but he could be a little edgy was Kiefer Sutherland. And Kiefer Sutherland was doing a, a prison movie called Last Light for Us. 
and we got the interview done and um, it, it was it, it, again a long wait and uh, Kiefer went off and did his thing and I'm looking at the cameraman he's futzing with the camera so I jokingly said tell me you didn't get this interview uh, and you want me to do it again he said can we he had not gotten the interview. There was a problem with the recording. So I literally, the last thing I wanted to do was go back and get Keith. I got him to do it the next day, but that was basically a publicist nightmare that you work all day to get this one interview and, oh and it just falls completely apart. But I've had great, I've had some great experiences on film sets. I mean, I, I, I worked on the remake of 12 Angry Men uh, with George mm. C. Scott and Hume Cronin and uh, a wonderful cast and um, a, a young actor named James Gandolfini that nobody knew who would to shortly be Tony Soprano. And that was a joy. Uh, William Friedkin directed it, of course, from The Exorcist and The French Connection. And we shot it in 12 days and it was, it was just marvelous. I got to sit on the couch and hang out with George C. Scott and I That's quote amazing. a dialogue from Patton for him and he laughed and it's just really <laughs> fun stuff. <laughs> By the way, George C. Scott was funny. He had a sign on his trailer door that said, don't knock. He got so tired of people knocking constantly, whether he was standing there in his underwear or whatever, you just walked in on George. And uh, that was pretty funny. That's very cool. When, uh, when did you make the, the move to get in, um, to be more involved in production because i saw uh, you have a lot of production credits yeah. under your belt well i i worked at showtime now i came to showtime in 92 and they were transitioning to start making more original movies and it was a real heyday for them they were green lighting 30 to 35 movies a year which wow. was great and I, having done, I had worked briefly in a company that made electronic press kits. And so we would go out on sets and I would actually do the things that uh, I used to work with the, the, you know, the producers on. So I got a little taste of filmmaking there. And then uh, I was on a set with Joe Montaigne, the actor who we know from Godfather 3 and Criminal Minds, et cetera. And Joe and I are big Chicago Cubs baseball fans. We just love the Cubs. <laughs> and uh, we actually celebrated together in 2016 at his Italian restaurant in Studio City when they won the World Series. So that was pretty fun. He had uh, his his little pizza restaurant seats about 35 people and there were 170 in there. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell the fire marshal. <laughs> Don't tell the fire marshal. Exactly. Um, so I, I was working on a film with Joe called Attack of the Five Foot Two Women which was about Lorena Bobbitt and uh, uh, the lady who hit the ice skater's knee. I forget her name. You Tanya Harding. Tanya Harding. Uh, <laughs> it was just, <laughs> it was a goofy little movie, but I'm hanging out with Joe and I asked him about a play of his called Bleacher Bums, which was a play that had ran in LA for years, all about the fans who follow the Cubs who are like the lovable losers. And he said, they tried to get a movie made, nothing ever happened. So it, it just so happened that the head of Showtime was a big baseball fan. So I was able to sell my first movie to Showtime. Uh, we shot it in Toronto just before 9-11. And it was just a thrill, just an absolute thrill to arrive as a producer. In fact, I had a, one of those great moments where I was uh, working with the director, Saul Rubinek, who's a fine character actor. You've seen him in a million things. Uh, and Charles Durning, the great character actor, and Maury Chaikin, the great character actor. I'm lining up a photo 
for the still photographer, just like I used to do as a publicist. And then I suddenly realized I could be in this photo. So I'm in the photo with these guys hanging out as a producer. So it was like one of those great moments for me. I have arrived. That's amazing. <laughs> I like I like the um, imagining that you set it up and you take the step back and then literally the light bulb over your head. Like, I wait a minute. I'm there too. Yeah, I'm, I can be, I, I <laughs> yes, should be in this. Absolutely. And then you take the step forward. That, you know, it's funny having worked in a lot of areas of the film, uh, getting to produce a film that's based on an idea you had is just thrilling. And uh, it's very hard to get movies made. You know, it's just, uh, it's kind of like winning the lottery in many ways. You know, uh, you think you, if you make one, you can make 10, but it doesn't work like that. But I got my chips on the table. I, I ended up going over to Hallmark and the head of Hallmark was the former head of Showtime at the time, or at least one of the key producers. And I was able to sell him a true World War II drama called Silent Night, which starred Linda Hamilton. And it was a true story of a Christmas truce in the Ardennes in the middle of the Battle of the Bulge on Christmas Eve, where German and American combat troops actually broke bread together, sang songs together, <clears throat> and left as friends in the morning. True story. Wow. And that was that was exciting for me. So I, I was, you know, kind of playing around. I, I did some indies, and now I'm focusing on writing. Uh, I'm teamed. Uh, I have two different partners. I write animation with David Miller, and then I'm writing comedy with Billy Revac. And Billy was one of the original writer producers on Home Improvement, the Tim Allen series. And he wrote for a lot of the Disney Channel shows. And we're we're determined to get uh, some four quadrant uh family comedies back into the you know the ecosphere because we think comedy is one genre that's fallen down quite a bit in film mm -hmm. you know where are the ghostbusters today where are the back to the futures wizard of oz night at the museum i will i will say this though the latest ghostbusters movie if you haven't seen it i thought was terrific i we haven't no the last one i saw was the um all girl was yes. the reboot yeah 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 it was okay not great, but okay. Different than the original. Uh, right. Substantially different than the original. This new one is just a nice homage to the spirit of the original. And it has some twists and turns you don't expect. So I really recommend it. I wasn't in a hurry to see it, but I, I figured I'd take a chance. And it was I think it's the only movie we've seen in the theater uh, since the beginning of COVID. So uh it was it was actually it was worth going nice that's awesome i'll have to take a look for it because we yeah don't, we don't do the movies much i do them more than he does since what did we just say we just didn't we see oh we saw spider-man like on the first right something like at the very beginning of the year or the very end of yeah. the year we saw we finally saw the newest spider-man yeah but before that it probably been at least two years since we've been in the theater yeah um so moved on to writing mm -hmm. which you have two, you've got a few books, but two of them, uh, you've got the James Bond Encyclopedia and the Twilight, Twilight Zone, Zone Encyclopedia. How did those come about? Well, the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia came about because um, I was looking for something to write. And we'll talk about Bond in a second. I've done six books on Bond. Bond, I'm very much of that Bond world. Oh, wow. uh, but I, in developing movie projects and getting involved in screenwriting and trying to set films up as a producer literally can take decades and you can just have nothing to show for it. So I was saying to myself one day, 
I got to get back into writing. And I'm a big fan of Mark Sacree's book, The Twilight Zone Companion, which is considered the Bible for the original Twilight Zone. But he doesn't get into the backgrounds of all the players, of not only the writers, directors, producers, but the actors. And arguably the original Twilight Zone, the original black and white series, had the finest cast ever assembled in the history of television each week. I mean, they basically had to create a new movie each week and uh, I love the idea, having done the James Bond encyclopedia, of exploring these actors and their backgrounds and then doing it just like I did with Bond in A to Z format, where I could just present kind of a nice companion volume to what Mark had done. And uh, I give you a teaser for each episode uh, so that you don't have the whole plot. So if you haven't seen the episode, I'm not going to give it away for you. And... Um, I have his opening remarks, you know, the the uh, the, the thing oh, he would nice. say at the beginning of each episode. And I got very friendly with Carol Serling, Rod's widow, and she opened the filing cabinets to me. So I had access to contracts and photographs oh, and wow. a lot of interesting background on the series. So I think I brought something new to the book. And I'm very proud of the book. It turned out swell. It came out, I think, in 17 and it's uh, it's done very well. That's awesome. Yeah. How did you end up getting involved uh, with Carol Serling? Did you, was it a cold call? Did you have a mutual friend? Well, there were two things happening. Uh, I decided to direct something. You know, when you're out here, sometimes you have this crazy, wacky idea that maybe I should just go direct something because you never know that somebody might ask you to direct something. And if you haven't directed anything, you're not going to get the gig. So I decided to remake an episode of The Twilight Zone as kind of an experimental film. A friend of mine had, who was a military liaison guy with Hollywood had become very friendly with the Marine Corps office. So we decided to remake The Seventh is Made Up of Phantoms which is about an American tank crew on maneuvers in modern South Dakota that goes through this warp and ends up in the time of Custer's last stand, mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite episodes. Uh, it's a great war and Oates is in it. Uh, it's a great, great episode. So we went down to Camp Pendleton down in uh, San Diego County, and we filmed there with a lot of military hardware. It's kind of an experimental film. It Basically, it was my opportunity to see it if I had any comfort level working with actors. Mm -hmm. And I had fun. I really did. It's, I think it turned out swell. It was, uh, I, I made all the, the, the freshman mistakes that young directors make. So, for instance, I was told, well, you got to have a crane. Got to have a crane shot. And that was a nightmare. They don't tell you when you say you get a crane that it takes three hours to set up a crane shot. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you're fighting losing the sun because we're filming and uh, we film partially in uh, north, north, north of Los Angeles near a mountain uh, near the, you know, the, the coast range. So we lost the light at four o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, so, uh, you know, spending three hours on a crane shot was a mistake, but I, it was, it was interesting. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're setting up your first movie, don't set it up in a place where you may not be able to get to the set because of frost warnings. You know, oh, we, oh, we weren't even sure we could get there. There was, it was, we filmed just before Christmas and there was, you know, snow flurries and hail and, uh, but oh, it was fun. So that, so Carol, I told, I got in touch with Carol to ask her if she'd come see it. And I got to her and then um, 
at Showtime, when I was making Bleacher Bums, I had a little first look deal at Showtime. So I, I got them interested in doing a biography of Rod Serling for a while. So we got the rights from Carol and we were actually uh, developing it, although Showtime changed their mind about movies and went to the series format. So all the movie projects went into the toilet, yeah. but I became friend friendly with her on that. So we, um, we had a great time, although there was one little hiccup. And I've told the story a few times. Um, I was very interested in what Rod's um, inspirations were, what, what motivated him to do this great series and what he brought to his writing. Carol suggested that I re read the long, long preface in his collection of his live Broadway uh, or his live New York uh, drama shows that he did back in the 50s before he did Twilight Zone. He had a tremendous reputation as one of Hollywood or one of uh, the U.S.'s top TV dramatic writers. He won three Emmys. Um, so she handed me this book of his, which was a bound copy of all of his uh, teleplays. It was published. It wasn't like it was handbound. So I brought it home. It was his personal copy. I brought it home. I put it on my desk. And then I guess my wife called me about, we have to go somewhere. So I said, I'll look at it later. It came back to my office two hours later and the book disappeared. <gasps> now, this was a little creepy for me because, well, first of all, I'm borrowing Rod Serling's personal copy do, of do, his do, bound. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Would you guys believe I, I spent three days looking for that book in my office? My, my office isn't the size of an airplane hangar. It's a very small office, but it completely disappeared into thin air. And there's no way uh, it could have fallen into the trash can because unless there had been a minor earthquake tremor uh, and it just disappeared so that was that little little strange for me it's not the only time though about uh five years ago i went to an uh, a symposium in um in binghamton there uh, they do the twilight zone uh symposium there every so often mm -hmm. and uh, one of the my fellow writers took me out to rod's house where he grew up and we're standing in front and the owner comes out and says would you like me to take a picture of you in front of the house I said, great. So I handed her my iPhone. They took the picture, said, thank you very much. Later on, I'm looking at the picture. It's in black and white, which <laughs> makes no sense. That's so this, neat, though. <laughs> to set up a black and white photo, you have to pre-program your phone so it's black and white. Yeah. Right. I didn't do that. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. So I've had some interesting experiences with the Twilight Zone. Uh, I mean, that, that just things that have happened to me. Whether there's a... Uh, a doorway to another dimension in my house. I don't know. <laughs> so the book was never, the book was never found. I never found the book. Wow. I mean, someone had to have taken someone it. Someone totally took that. But this isn't the first time I was my, when my son was four years old, we were playing on the living room floor of uh, the living room carpet. And I have a little twist of flex watch that he was biting with his, you know, with his, his newly minted teeth. And I said, I better take off my watch. So I took off my watch and I put it behind me on the, the living room floor. And we played for a while. And then I got up to leave to get my watch. And I reached behind me. No watch. Now, that's even weirder than the bookstore, because there's literally nowhere that watch could have gone. And uh, so I... <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my goodness. You have house gremlins. You, you have, you I, have, have a I, I have a poltergeist, I think. A very pesky, mischievous poltergeist, I <laughs> yes. think. Someday I'm going to get a whole trove of things that they're going to pop open. <laughs> the ceiling's going to open. You're just going to shower. Time capsule <laughs> you never knew you were building. Which is great. <laughs> Give it back. Um, so how does that conversation go with, with Carol? With Mrs. Serling? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I was on. embarrassed by the whole thing. I went on eBay and bought her the same book. So thank God it wasn't an autograph copy. Otherwise, I would have really been dead and it would have been a disaster. But uh, when it came time to do my book and I had to get the photos from her, I couldn't borrow the photos. I had to go over there and digitally <laughs> capture each photo. I don't blame her, frankly. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can use them while I'm watching you and you're here. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh exactly. That's crazy. I mean, have you guys ever had a moment in your home where you actually have no idea where something went? Because we all lose stuff all the time. Yes, but for me, I I know I just lose stuff or I'll it's never as direct where I will I know a thousand percent I've got something on my desk. I walk away and it's gone. I, I will put something where it doesn't belong and then forget which random spot I put it in. And then, then I go crying to my wife and say, Hey, can you find this? And, and she'll I, roll her eyes and find it. And yeah, sometimes it's not more than turn around. It's right there. So yeah, but no, not I, like that's... that. Not like that. No. I mean, I lose, I literally lose everything. I, I also like will walk into a room and not know why I'm there. And leave again because what did I just come in here for? I feel oh, like I, I, those are those are brain hiccups. I have those all the time. Too. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, no, nothing to what you've described. No, in no. in those situations, nothing the watch like or that. the book. No, it's it's always me just not putting something where it belongs. <laughs> <laughs> the the concept of multi dimensions, uh, you know, the multiverse idea, isn't as far fetched as some people think. It's you know, there 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 very well could be things going on that we don't know about, but uh, it's um. It's strange. Um, one of my good friends is Barry Taff, and Barry has investigated over 5,000 hauntings. Oh, wow. And he's, the, he, he's seen things that would just make you go nuts. And I had him on my podcast a couple months ago, and he, his, uh, his case that was investigated when he was at UCLA became the movie with Barbara Hershey called The Entity. 1979 okay, it was about yeah. a woman in Culver City who claimed that she was raped by a ghost mm -hmm. and uh his story is quite compelling and he he he's um he's an interesting chap I I took a PR assignment about 10-15 years ago uh to promote a little movie that was shooting on the driveway of the Sharon Tate mansion the old Sharon Tate mansion where the killings took place mm -hmm. and the owner of the house was this character who claimed that he was asleep in the bottom bedroom of this house that had been built opposite the driveway, and he saw the ghost of Jay Sebring. So he came up with this crazy idea of a, a movie idea of this group of friends who get together, and it turns out that uh, the killers, it isn't the Tate killing, it's fictionalized, but mm -hmm. there are killers, it's back in, it's now 1969 again, and the killers are coming to that house, and what are you going to do? So it was kind of a creepy thing, but I didn't really know how to publicize a little indie like that because it was uh, it was a little odd. So I decided to bring Barry out because I figured, you know, if this guy's seeing ghosts, 
maybe if Barry came out, maybe he'll have something fun to report. And then I could get maybe a little break in the local paper. So little, little did I know that Barry comes out and discovers that the levels of electromagnetic radiation that are coming from this house are off the charts. Now, this is a guy who's investigated 5,000 houses. He brings his little, you know, his, his electronic instruments to measure levels. He'd never seen levels like this before. Oh, wow. So, uh, and then he, I went around, or he went around taking photographs of me holding equipment. And when the photos were looked at digitally, there were little um, orbs, orbs in them. And I, the whole thing about orbs and photos is well known that yeah. it could mean paranormal activity. So uh, we actually ended up getting a, a beautiful story done in the LA Times on that movie. Uh, it's called um, The House at the End of the Drive. I think you can get it uh, independently uh, through uh, Amazon. But uh, that was an example of trying to put some kind of publicity element together using the elements I know. Michelle's a big paranormal fan. I love stuff like that. It really, it just, I like getting chills. I like, um, I like the unknown. I have no doubt that there are things out there that I do not know about. Like I have no reason to think they don't exist. Um, I have a small little business where I take dolls and I kind of recreate them into horror dolls. And one of our friends who's actually a podcaster as well, she's an electronic medium. And she came over and into my doll studio and we had a EVP session in there. And it was so interesting. Like, just like, I was like, Ooh, like not like I'm uncomfortable to be at home anymore, but just, it was really neat. The energy levels and whatnot. <laughs> just the what things. Do you, what do you, what do you mean by an EVP session? Um, electronic voice recording. So she actually used two variations of spirit boxes to record while we were in the room. And then basically she just went through i mean some things we could hear on the spot that were clear as day and i didn't think i'd be able to hear them as well coming from the mechanics but i did and then other stuff neither of us could hear with like the naked ear but after she went through it she could like amplify and we caught all sorts of we have um there's a link to it i can send you the link it was such an interesting session like they were talking about Peter. They were talking about our cats. It was like, what the heck? So it was wild. I thought it was wild. He's kind of like, eh. I, I tend to be more on the, the skeptic side of things. I, it's okay. Yeah. You're, you're more science. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, I mean, that's scientific, but I just don't necessarily. <laughs> I, I'm on the fence. There are things that go bump in the night, whether you like it or not. <laughs> And there's different reasons for why those things go bump in the night. Hey, listen, I will not watch Poltergeist Geist by myself. I just really? I refuse to. That and the, the original The Haunting. Oh, man. The only movie I struggle with to this day by myself or with someone is The Exorcist. For whatever reason, I saw it when I was too young. And it still creeps me out to this day. I Ma love the idea. Man. I love the story. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. It's only one, one of the few times I've been to the movie theater that the, the scene, the, the audience was so frightened. 
that everybody started laughing afterwards because they were freaked out. <laughs> yes. Yep. That's, that's the exorcist. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny because I got to work with Billy Friedkin. I told you I was working yeah, on 12 that. angry men mm-hmm. and I asked him, cause there were all these stories uh, when the exorcist was in production about paranormal things happening on the set, you know, things were burning down, blah, blah, blah. And Freakin told me that that was all a cover-up, uh, or not a cover-up, a camouflage, to because uh, this movie was way over budget, and <laughs> they had to, they were they were they were trying not to get the show shut down by the studio, so they invented all this paranormal crap. So there you go. That is genius. It really is. We're not over budget. It's damaged. We have to do it again. And then that gets out. The press picks it up. Mm-hmm. And then there's even more buzz for it. And then the studio is like, well, we can't cancel this because people want to see it. Yeah. This haunted set. <laughs> yep. That's hilarious. That's exactly Love that. True. Now, you're a big James Bond fan as well. Well, before before we go to James Bond, oh, I'm, I'm just going to say halting on James Bond. Okay. just for a second, because you mentioned that you had um your your paranormal investigator on your podcast what's his name well i was gonna say if you want to talk about um his name and and your podcast podcast itself for sure we'd love to hear about that oh sure well uh the the gentleman's name is barry taff it's t as in tony a double f as in frank you can look him up he's 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 done a wonderful book on a lot of his investigations uh my podcast is called steve rubin's saturday night at the movies and we're we're on uh, every week uh, on Amazon, Apple, and Spotify. Uh, I try to interview people involved in some form of film history, whether it's a writer or, or some of the actors who actually appeared in the shows. Uh, the, uh, the week before last, I had Kim Carath on, who played Little Gretel in the, the original Sound of Music. Uh, and that was, 50, she was 57 years ago. Um, she's adorable. And... Uh, I had ta- I had Paul Anka on the other night talking about the longest day and look in any window, uh, which is a little guilty pleasure uh, movie of, of mine, a little, a little thriller. And I'm having a lot of fun. I'm actually going back to the enthusiasm I had as a cinefantastic writer and early book writing so that uh, I'm enjoying it. I'm trying to build my my reputation as a film historian nationwide so I could start maybe getting some hosting gigs, kind of like what Ben Mankiewicz does on Turner Classic Movies. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, you know, you definitely know your stuff. I would, yeah. I would listen to you. I would tune into that. So, well, thank you. Thank we're going to, we're going to check out your show for sure. On no, hundred percent. The, yeah, no, the Steve Rubin, uh, Steve Rubin Saturday night at the movies. I, I, we do love movies. Do. Um, and anytime we can get more information about them or just the, the, the behind the scenes, I mean, that's kind of the reason we started doing this. We just like talking about it um, and people's experiences filming and, and creating. And I love, I personally love listening to the storytelling. Like everybody is so passionate about what they've been involved in. And it's great because even if we think we know there's different insight and in just seeing how excited they get or how serious and intense they get like, I love to sit back and like, listen to you all. Like, it's great. And I can't thank you enough for taking time to do this with us and tell us about what you've been doing. So thank you. Thank you for that. hundred percent. Absolutely. Thank you. But Bond was, uh, was when I was back, back when I was doing the combat films book and selling 500 copies, I said to myself, I got to write about something that people will want to read about. Otherwise I'm getting out of writing. And, uh, 
there had been one book published. This is back in the mid 70s. It's called uh, James Bond of the Cinema by a fine writer in London named John Brosnan, but no behind the scenes information. So having done this kind of forensic work for Cinefantastique and with my combat films book, I decided to pay a call on Albert R. Broccoli, the head of the Bond empire. And I got him on a good day and I had a great interview with him. And he introduced me to Michael G. Wilson, who now is the producer with uh, Broccoli's daughter, Barbara. Uh, I went to London that year and I got the, the filing cabinets flew open again. And this time I had access to all of the call sheets from the first 10 Bond movies. Wow. Now, a, call, a call sheet for a film historian is like the Rosetta Stone. It tells you who, what scene they were working on, on which day, who was in it, who the extras were, you know, if they had specialty things going on. So I was able to tell you exactly when these movies were shot and who was in them, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, there were little things that they published in the call sheet that you generally aren't known, like who played Blofeld in From Russia With Love. You know, there's no name because you just see the cat in his lap. You don't see the guy, but it's uh, Anthony Dawson who played Professor Dent and Dr. No. They had him for the day just to play the lap of Blofeld. So that little oh, things lap. like that pop up on the call sheets. And I did a lot of interviewing and that was my first book. That was called The James Bond Films, A Behind the Scenes History which in two editions sold 50,000 copies. So that was a real wow. success for me. That's a big jump and, up from 500. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I've been selling Bond books ever since. The latest is the fourth edition of the James Bond movie encyclopedia, my first book with color. So I have over 400 photographs in the book, and many of them are in color. And then Jeff Marshall, who's a fine artist back east, he did 20 paintings that I also feature in the book. His kind of his evocative uh, uh, versions of the posters, but he did them in a different style and they're beautiful. So I, I really owe Jeff Marshall a lot. He's a wonderful artist. And um, I think Brian May was another artist who gave me stuff, but I, I'm very happy. I, I re redid the whole encyclopedia for Chicago Review Press, which had done my Twilight Zone encyclopedia. So it's not just another version of the book. It's a totally brand new version with a lot of new material. Do you update it as more Bond movies come out or do you wait? How does, what's that process like? Well, it was a little crazy because the no time to die. The latest Bond movie was, uh, was postponed like three or four different times. So I was all set to see the movie last, uh, last April, about a year ago, and then they canceled it. So I had to really scramble to get enough information on the new movie to satisfy the fans, at least initially because they, they had a cone of silence over the plot of this new Bond movie. You couldn't learn anything from anybody. Uh, you know, usually I'll, uh, a script will start to circulate on the net and you can get all the details, but they guarded this like they guarded Fort Knox. It was really, you know, it was really tough to get information. But I think I satisfied the, the fans. I got enough in there, at least initially. Uh, and it's pretty accurate, pretty up to date now through the latest. And of course... The, the great thing about Bond is they're new Bond movies, but that's not great for encyclopedia writers because you have to you know, create a whole new edition. So, you know, how many editions of the encyclopedia is the public going to buy? So I don't think like I had gone. Uh, let's see. This came out in 20. So I'd gone 17 years since the last edition. 
So I hadn't didn't have any of the Daniel Craig's in there. So now I have all the Daniel Craig's. So it'll probably be another 10 or 15 years before I return to it. Hopefully I'll be just focused on my movie making. With that in mind, with the foresight of knowing that you're essentially the guy who does this um, as newer bonds, when they do hire a new bond um, and start production on new movies, would you be able to go there for a day just to be on set because you've got the green light from everyone in the bond verse? Well, I had the green light for about a week. <laughs> and then then I made the mistake of showing Albert Broccoli some transcripts of interviews with other people whose opinions he did not agree with. So the cooperation uh, stopped. And oh. I am perceived of as the maverick in the Bond world. So I don't really... I don't really contact them. They don't really contact me. And we kind of stay out of each other's hair. And I guess it's just fine that way. So I think the time I arrive on that film set will be uh, like never. (laughs) (laughs) Based on um, the opinions of other people. Well, there was another little glitch that happened. Uh, Fred Clark, who I mentioned earlier, the editor of Cinefantastic, just a terrific magazine writer, editor, producer. Um, uh, initially they tried to stop the first book because since I had, I, I, they kind of didn't want to cooperate with it and they didn't want me to use any photos. So, uh, that's a challenge for somebody writing about the James Bond movies. Cause how can you write a book about the James Bond movies and not show pictures of everybody? Right. So I had to struggle to find photographs that they didn't own. So Fred Clark got it in his, in his head that I'm going to do an ad with Cubby Broccoli's head in a gun sight saying, who is this producer and why does he want this book stopped? You know, kind of a, you know, kind of a controversial National Enquirer type of headline without, without telling me. I would have put the kibosh on this in five seconds, but he did it on his own. And I was in the MGM parking lot and Michael Wilson saw me and he had seen that ad and he was furious. I can't imagine and he was too happy. He was furious. And that was literally the last time I ever had a conversation with Michael Wilson. And over the years, they, you know, they know that I'm a fan. It's not like I'm, I'm publishing anti-Bond stuff. I'm the opposite. I love Bond. Bond mm-hmm. is kind of a, a fun area that I've always covered. But uh, in terms of official cooperation, invites to film sets, I don't know. I may try to get Barbara Broccoli on my podcast, but I think the chances are slim and none and slims out to lunch. Right. That's a shame. And and it's not even it's not even your fault. It's just an affiliation that got you uh, blackballed. Yeah. Blacklisted. Blacklisted. That's too bad, but it didn't, it doesn't stop you from still writing the books though. At least they can't stop that. No. And as a film historian, I have certain rights to do things and uh, I'm allowed to publish photographs because of the fair use doctrine. If you're trying to make an historical point using a photograph as an image, then you don't have to pay them for the rights to that photograph. And all of these photos that I'm using are publicity stills. So uh, according to my publisher, a publicity still they can't protect in that way, especially if I'm using it as historical context. If I was just publishing a picture book with just a bunch of pictures of the Bond movies and captions, they could they could hit me on that one. But I'm a historian. I've been a historian since the beginning. 
does that does that put the book in a different class instead of uh, being nonfiction? It's a historical book, or is it still just a basic nonfiction? Well, it's nonfiction. It's history. I'm making. You know, it's interesting. There's been a whole uh, reevaluation of fair use. I mean, there was a documentary produced about ten years ago where they, they, I think it was uh, about everything that's been filmed in L.A. And they used a lot of footage from movies that were shot in L.A., claiming that was the, the how they illustrated how to make the historical point that these films were shot in L.A. And they weren't uh, sued by the studios. And they used a lot of studio video footage. I did a documentary two years ago with a French filmmaker. We He had taken a camera crew to all the locations where they filmed the Steve McQueen uh, World War II movie, The Great Escape. Mm-hmm. And uh, which is one of my favorite movies. And so we came up with a uh, a documentary called The Coolest Guy Movie Ever. And that came out and we used four minutes of The Great Escape in the movie and didn't pay MGM a dime. And uh, once again, we're using it to historically make the point. This is the way it looked in 1962. This is the way it looks in 2018. Does it get, does it matter if it's for profit or for not for profit at all or no, just because it's for historical purposes? It doesn't matter. I mean, there are, there are legal people that will threaten and indeed with the latest bond book that I wrote, they they'll threaten, but uh, we have good, um, we have uh, good paper on terms of what we can and cannot do as film historians. If you're not allowed to use photos to illustrate, then you can't do history and then it's a restraint of, you know, it's a restraint of uh, authors' privileges as historians. You know, oh, interesting. It's crazy how complicated these things can get, especially like you're a guy, there's no malice. You're not trying to get anybody. You're just trying to put out a collection of information yeah. and just the the pushback seems so unnecessary. I kind of get it, but at the same time, it just seems unnecessary. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, I, I just, uh, I'm just at the, at the core of it, Peter, I am a fan. I love the Bond movies. I love talking Bond. I have one friend, we don't talk normal. We just do Bond lines. <laughs> he calls up and says, do you expect me to talk? And I say, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. <laughs> so with that being said, Steve, who is your favorite Bond? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the usual uh, reference is that you love the bond you grow up with. And since I grew up with Sean Connery, Sean Connery has always been my favorite bond. But that said, I have absolutely loved Daniel Craig. The five movies he did were just, they were a little up and down in terms of quality, but he's always terrific. And I'm a big fan of his. And um, uh, I would say that in terms of my favorite bond movies, Number one is Goldfinger, but number one right next to a Tide is Casino Royale, the first Daniel Craig. Such a great opening scene. Mm -hmm. Parkour was brand new, and he just comes out in this, I don't know, five, six, seven minute crazy parkour chase scene. As the historian, I'm sure I said three wrong things, but <laughs> no, no, no. You, the, the guy who actually he was chasing the bond maker, the bomb maker was one of the world's leading experts on parkour. So that's not a stunt man. That's him. Oh, and crazy. it's just incre- incredible. I mean, it was uh, wild to watch. And uh, I think 
uh, I don't know if Craig hurt himself on that scene, but he heard him. He's hurt himself several times in the series. And uh, I think he got his teeth knocked out at one point. Oh, uh, yeah, he's uh, he, Craig brings it all. I mean, that's one of the hallmarks of his performances that uh, he doesn't hold back. And if you have you guys seen the latest Bond movie? I've I think I've seen the first three Daniel Craig Bond movies okay. and then I realized it was very um um it's a series like you can't jump in on four like a, a lot of the Bond movies it's it's anthology so it's you don't need what to watch one to enjoy the other they're kind of independent but it seemed like the Daniel Craig ones it was this encapsulating story so it's like oh, I can't watch this one until I watch that one and then they just kept getting made <laughs> Well, I would say specifically, you should see Spectre before you see No Time to Die, because those are definitely tied together. The first three are are loosely tied together. Okay. Uh, but I think uh, if you're going to see No Time to Die, the latest, you should watch Spectre. Okay. But uh, why do you ask? Just if we had seen it, or were you going to say something? <clears throat> no, I just because uh, it's there's been a storm of controversy about the latest Bond movie, and I didn't know if you had seen it yet. So, oh I mean, no, the only controversy I've yeah, I was yeah, just going to say the only say, one I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> Steve, please go ahead. I was going to say, be prepared for some surprises. Okay, yeah, the only controversy I, I've heard, and it feels like the last couple years, but COVID, I have to add two years to everything yeah. because it just seems like yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, is just who's who should be the next Bond. Um, do you have any thoughts on who you'd like to see for the, the next James Bond? Well, 007 is a, um, is a secret agent. So the concept of an unknown actor playing Bond to me sounds really good because if you recall when Daniel Craig got the job, we had no idea who that was. I mean, he had done some small roles. Um, but I think, um, you know, some people say that uh, the actor who plays Superman would be a good actor to play Bond, um, Henry Cavill. And uh, he, he looks the part, but we kind of know Henry Cavill, you know. Yeah. Then again, we knew Roger Moore when he got the role because he had been the saint. He had been, you know, on television. Mm -hmm. um, I'm hoping they get somebody relatively unknown to give it uh, some new flavor. And the, only, the, the problem with the Bond series is these are big, big, big movies. So I know that in, in producer parlance, you're hesitant to take an unknown because sometimes, you know, unknowns don't have the box office value that a more established actor. But then again, an established actor may not want to do five films. So it is kind of an interesting challenge. Um, uh, there's a, do you guys watch the Outlander TV series? Mm -mm. no we haven't oh. seen it yet yeah the, the guy who plays the lead on that sam hune he's he's a potential bond uh, not as well known but that is a great series by the way it's a time travel series it's oh. about a combat medic in 1945 who after the war ends goes up to scotland with her husband and falls through a rock like stonehenge thing ends up in 17th century scotland oh wow huh. it's pretty pretty crazy I'd watch that. You say that. I would. I, I might fall asleep on it because I get sleepy. But... I can't get you to watch 1900s. What? What are you talking about? You're still missing out on Peaky Blinders. I have not. You know, it's you've. I, by about the way, I, I tried Peaky Blinders. And you know what the problem I had with Peaky Blinders? What? I couldn't understand what they were saying. <laughs> 
Was that she, English? <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That's all I can say. It is amazing. Thank you. Last season is out now. It'll come to Netflix in a couple months. I can't wait. Kiki Blinders is fantastic. <laughs> Just put subtitles on. Oh, all my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but that's that's super interesting about having an unknown for Bond because when you were talking about um, the um, oh my god, his name just uh, Craig Craig did, no, yes, yes, and his Craig. movies because my mind just went blank. Um, I I can't think of a single movie before um, Casino Royale. Obviously, he was in Knives Out. But, mm-hmm. I, but I, after, yeah, well, he, has a, he has a small part in one of the Tomb Raider movies with, uh, you know, with uh, Angelina, Angelina Jolie. He's in Munich. Uh, he's oh. one of the uh, Israeli, I think, uh, uh, Mossad guys in Munich. Uh, oh, wow. But not a lot of stuff. Not a lot of stuff. I, I, we, I, in fact, we referred to him kind of disparagingly at first as that blonde Bond. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh my gosh! Absolutely. Well, because he he came in right after Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. Um, who was my favorite? But well, Sean Connery is such a classic. But uh, Pierce Brosnan was my Bond, and Goldeneye was uh, I was that was my that was my movie, my video game. Yeah, that was your video. Oh, that was so much fun. Pierce was terrific. And I just think the movies weren't written as well uh, for that time. What's interesting about the Craig Bonds is they've gotten tougher, grittier, more violent, less sexy. I think they kind of reflect the times. I won't Mm -hmm. say that they're totally woke, but I think that they've become... Uh, very much aware of the universe they're in. And I think Barbara Broccoli has had a strong influence on on the tone of the films. I think they've become uh, less sexy and and, uh, less, um, you know, their their portraits of women are different than uh, than this, obviously, than the beginning. You know, you're not going to be slapping masseuses on the bottom and (laughs) (laughs) telling them, man talk, I'll see you later. (laughs) No, some, uh, unfortunately... Um, some of the Sean Connery scenes get hard to watch uh, as time goes on, just because it was such a different time and different mm-hmm. era. Um, and that makes sense. And I, I think uh, people lost their appetite for that, where that gritty, violent bond is definitely more of an appeal for today's audience. Well, also, they're competing now like they never were. I mean, when Sean Connery made the first James Bond movies, there was literally no competition. Now you've got the Bourne movies, you've got the Mission Impossible movies, you've got the Kingsman movies, and you've got uh, even uh, a series like Fast and the Furious, which has done all these car chasing things. You know, Mm -hmm. Bond used to be very much about chases and things like that, but you're competing now with them. I thought the, the, you know, I thought the car chases in the latest Bond movie were terrific and they had to be because they had to compete with those uh, things they do with cars and Fast and the Furious, which is unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm trying to think of the different studios and if if any of the studios do the same movies or if if they all are in competition. But I don't know off the top of my head. You know, when, when I first read those Ian Fleming novels back in the 60s, there was an American series called Matt Helm. It was written by Donald Hamilton. And uh, these were also very gritty, very American. And the studio that made them first four movies uh, uh, decided to cast Dean Martin as Matt. 
And it was one of the great miscastings in history, but they were going more of a spoof of Bond. You know, it was kind of not really serious. Matt Helm could have easily been another Bond series, but it went the goofy route, you know, so. I wonder, I, I feel like I could see Dean Martin doing that an American version of a James Bond when you say um was it just kind of was it jokey or was it just too over well, the top very to tongue-in-cheek his secretary's name was lovey craves it and he's always drinking it's just very dean martin-esque and he was oh, much man. too old to play uh, play this character and you know, it was it was it was very much kind of the Roger Moore kind of shtick that later, you know, Roger brought to the Bond movies because Roger's Bond was much lighter. You know, yeah. Roger would talk his way out of a sequence. He wouldn't punch his way out of a sequence. That's pretty much when I came into it. I think he, I think he was my Bond just for time frame wise. Really? Yeah. And his, his Bonds were very successful. In fact, by the mid 70s, the, the next generation of filmgoers had arrived and they needed some B12 to get excited about Bond. So uh, they gave them Roger in these increasingly more spectacular films. Uh, the Spy Who Loved Me, Loved me. particularly yeah. in 77, which was the summer of Star Wars, was really a big hit for uh, United Artists. And the Bond movies that followed, Moonraker, Octopussy, were big, epic successes. Mm-hmm. did sean connery come back after that or no D- didn't he wasn't there somebody in between like i thought sean connery did it then uh, he's daltrey no what happened Daltry. was that sean did the first five <laughs> yeah and mm-hmm. then george lazenby did one uh arguably one of the best films in the series it's called honor majesty's secret service he did one film he was an unknown model who walked into Cubby Broccoli's office and lied completely about his film experience, saying that he had done all these films in Eastern Europe. And this is before the internet. So there was nowhere to check on things. And it's and Peter Hunt, who had edited the first five Bond films, was given this movie to direct. So he's making his directing debut. He almost had a heart attack when he found out his actor had no experience. But if you watch George Lazenby in this one Bond movie, he's very comfortable in the role. And he could have easily gone on to more Bond movies, but his agent at the time said that Bond was done. Don't take a seven-year contract. So oh. George walked away from the series, one of the great uh, mistakes in the history of show business. So he did one, and then uh, they got Sean back for Diamonds Are Forever because they made him an uh, offer that he couldn't refuse. <laughs> and uh, and then uh, Roger comes in in 73 with Live and Let Die. And then... 12 years, actually 11 years, 10 years later, uh, Sean does one more, the kind of rival Bond movie, Never Say Never Again with uh, Klaus Maria Brandauer, which was essentially a remake of Thunderball, but it was done for Warner Brothers. And it's just that the Broccoli didn't have the rights to that book, uh, or at least the, the uh, rights to do a, another version of it. So it was a Bond movie, but it wasn't... It wasn't an official Bond movie. There, oh, there, there have been two. The, the Casino Royale, which was Ian Fleming's first novel, 
was not sold to Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman in 61 when they bought all the books that were available. That had been previously sold uh, to a, an actor named Gregory Ratoff, who was under contract to Fox, also doing some producer in the 50s uh, and producing in the 50s. And interestingly, in my research, I discovered the first person that was going to play a Bond character was going to be a woman. They thought of it as a vehicle for Susan Hayward, uh, the great actress who won the Oscar for I Want to Live and was a very popular Fox contract actress, but that didn't take. So Gregory couldn't do anything with it. Uh, Charles Feldman got the rights then, one of the top agents in Hollywood. And by the mid 60s, he couldn't get anybody interested in rivaling Sean Connery. So he decided to do the big lumbering spoof Casino Royale that was released in 67 with David Niven, Woody Allen, Peter Sellers, Orson Welles, everybody who was anybody. Huh. I had no idea. Me either. What are you, what are you looking up? I'm just looking at the actual list in order because I, I, I there's so many. There are so like, many. I can't, I like, you have an amazing mind because I can't even think of all. It's like, <laughs> wait, when was that one in between? So uh, 25 movies to uh, unofficial. So 27 Seven total. That's crazy. How long did it take you to put the first encyclopedia together? Uh, a year, a year. Uh, I had done most of the research for the first book, which wasn't the encyclopedia. The first book That's was right. called the James Bond films of behind the scenes history, which was published in 81 updated in 83. So by the time 90 comes along, I have a lot of information, but to make a formal encyclopedia, I had to restructure everything and it took me about a year. And uh, then um, this latest one took me almost two years because I had to spend a long time selecting the photos which is as much as, as important as the copy. Just, just because the photos will tell different stories. Well, I had to find them, you know, they're, oh, they're okay. fr friends of mine in England, Sweden, France opened their archives to me. So I was able to get photos. You know, if I didn't have any photos, I, I, and I wasn't getting any cooperation from the studio, I'd have to go to the stores on Hollywood Boulevard and buy photos. And those can be pricey. Sure. You know, sure. If you have 400 photos in your book, you, you're not going to get very far if you have to pay heavily for photos. And by the <laughs> way, if this wasn't a bond book, if I just was publishing a book on the films of Burt Lancaster, I needed a photo of him in Birdman from Alcatraz. That one photo could cost me as much as $200 from the studio. Jeez. So there's no way you can do a book with multiple illustrations by going through formal channels. You've got good friends then. <laughs> like seriously, if they helped you pick that out and get them all together, that's amazing. I couldn't imagine having to spend that much just to get photos for a book. Oh yeah, it's it's a challenge. The first book, when when Albert R. Broccoli withdrew photo cooperation, I had to really try to figure out a way to illustrate the book using my noodle. Like for Moonraker, I had to have photos of the space shuttle because the space shuttle is is called Moonraker in the movie. Mm -hmm. So I went to NASA and they gave me official photos of the space shuttle. You know, I just you know I just that that became part of my Moonraker illustration. I found photos from all the films that they didn't own because photographers would come to bond sets frequently and shoot photos that were not owned by the studio. So I was able to illustrate that way. And I got a lot of compliments on the way I illustrated those books. Are there other series or universes that you would want to do encyclopedias for? 
Not really. I mean, I love the Harry Potters. They're kind of been done. You know, those mm -hmm. books are all over the place. Star Wars as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's tons of books. Star Trek, you know, they've, they're pretty much cleaned out now. I actually had the thought of doing a book about Quentin Tarantino's latest film, mm -hmm. I, which I really thought was fun. The Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. But uh, I just realized that it's already old business, you know, on to new things. So uh, yeah, no, I think uh, I'm going to focus in the next few years just getting our movies made because we've written, you know, over 20 films now and we need to get those made. Now, you said earlier just the difficulty in getting a film made. And does that come down just to to funding or does that is that more of a logistic difficulty? Well, it's it's interesting. Um, in the old days, you could go to a studio and you could pitch the idea. You'd go to a creative executive and say, this is what I want to do. And that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, well, especially not during COVID. But uh, these days, I, my, the impression I'm getting is that if you go anywhere with just the screenplay, it'll sit in a corner very lonely. Mm -hmm. You've got to find a director of some note who loves the project. And then if the director has any clout is to get an actor or two interested in the story so that when you go to a streamer or a studio, you say, well, I've got this script. I've got this director. These actors are interested. Let's do, are you interested? It's just the way things are done now. And that's why most movies are made by the same people over and over again, because they have the connections. I didn't go to high school with George Clooney, unfortunately. So I can't call George and say, George, I got a great film for you. See, I, I, I probably know Fred Clooney. He's, he doesn't have any, <laughs> any connectivity. <laughs> Fred Clooney, I let you cheat off me in science. Where, <laughs> give me a call. <laughs> and that's, that's more for studio-backed movies you're try, um, versus like an independent movie, right? Right. Now, independently, you, you get into the whole concept of where do you raise the money? Mm -hmm. And I, I love the fact that someone once told me, just get 10 dentists together. They'll put up the money. So I, I, I took his advice. I went to my dentist and he said, no. <laughs> Listen, it, everybody knows you'll only ever get nine out of 10 dentists. There's always the one that says no. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I, I've been on every wild goose chase thing that you can imagine trying to find film funding. It's just, uh, it's very hard because of course, investors, the first thing they say is, how do I get my money back? And what do you say to them? You have no idea. There are no guarantees. I mean, it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's challenging. It's very challenging. Well, it's funny. You always hear um, either actors or directors talk about, uh, critical flops, but financial successes, mm -hmm. uh, because at the end of the day, behind the scenes, the studios only care about if it makes money. Obviously, yeah. they want people to like the movie, but if they cared about that, we wouldn't see so many remakes. So they they, they just want the cash. They yeah. want it to do financially well. I don't know if critiques matter anymore. I'm just I was looking uh, today. They were talking about this new Marvel movie, Morbius, which just opened. To be and fair, it's a Sony movie in association okay. with Marvel. OK, so there you go. <laughs> well, it's it important because the because Sony. Sorry, just to. Um, well, because Sony did Venom and they did the other. Well, they, technically they did the Spider-Man movies. But there's a difference between when Sony has control versus when Disney Studios has control. Fair enough. Well, whoever had control, they did something <laughs> right because this movie did 85 million the first weekend worldwide, which is considered a big success, yeah. despite the fact that it was completely trashed by the critics. 
everyone has been on social media all i keep seeing are pretty negative things about I still it still want to see it that's because you yeah. love Jared Leto. I do love Jared Leto. Jared Leto. Did, did did you like him in House of Gucci? Um, we've yet to finish House of Gucci. We had about halfway through. We're a little more than halfway through. Like he was interesting in it. Very odd role. It's used unrecognizable. I had no idea that was Jared. But Leto. he does that all the time. Like I feel like every time he's he completely transforms himself. And from what I understand, like once he's in a character he stays in that character throughout the whole duration during the filming time, like whether they're filming or not. Unless the scenes get cut. Unless, yeah. oh. <laughs> not my Joker. No, not my Joker at all. Actually, but... I, I when I was at Showtime, we did a, a little, um, well, we did a, a film series of remakes of American international kind of motorcycle and babe movies from the 50s. Mm-hmm. We did something called The Cool and the Crazy, directed by Ralph Bakshi, the animation guy. And one of the stars was Jared Leto. He was virtually unknown. Oh, I love that's that. a very interesting. Yeah, because I didn't I didn't know of him until my so-called life, probably. Oh, I thought you were gonna say Requiem. No, that was before that. Requiem, Requiem right, that's was the, great. That's so. the earliest thing I can think of. Then. Yeah. I mean, and then he was in that Lennon movie where he played Mark David Chapman. Was it chapter chapter 27? Maybe he goes, he's everywhere. He's everywhere. And he's a great musician. I've seen him in concert as well. So you are a leaded a leto groupie. I I'm part of the echelon. Yeah, no, I I do like him a lot. I do. It's it does get crazy when um like um Gary Oldman's an actor who just oh, looks so different in ninety percent of his movies. Oh yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And then some do like the actual physical changes. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Gary Oldman definitely changes like in some of his uh, roles. Actually, I think he did gain a bunch of weight for um. What was the? Didn't he Churchill? play? Pre- no. Uh, what did you say? Churchill. Churchill and didn't he play um did he do Hoover too or was that somebody else Ooh, maybe it was her something I, th- I might be thinking of Churchill though and then but did... he, think about him even in true romance when he was Drexel <laughs> I was like what? I'm like where is Gary Oldman in- I'm like, is that That's the greatest me? movie ever oh made? my god that is such a good movie that everybody is in true romance I, I actually hadn't seen it in the theaters I was I was channel surfing one night I came across the movie and oh my god the sequence where Dennis Hopper is talking to Christopher Walken in the trailer, trailer. is one of the classic <laughs> moments in cinema history and oh my goodness uh, and then there's unknown james gandolfini unknown james gandolfini mm-hmm. unknown brad pitt was in it i mean Got my couch goodness. don't go on to me man <laughs> <laughs> it was a great and by movie. the way saul rubinek who directed bleacher bums plays the producer who's buying the cocaine amazing what a fun world what a small hollywood i world. love that oh but Christian Bale, Christian, uh, uh, not Christian Bale, um, Christian Slater. Slater, Christian Slater is just great. And, uh, and Patricia Arquette. Uh, yeah. Patricia Arquette is great. It's just that movie just kicks. It really, it really kind of has something for everyone. Like it hits on so many fun points. And, and, and we shouldn't forget the fact that it's a script by quentin tarantino it is yeah. written okay i i knew it was something i just didn't know if he produced it or wrote, i knew he didn't direct it 
Now, Quentin Tarantino, we were just talking about this yesterday. I think um, we just love him. He's, he's his so fun. ability to write. He's he's definitely my favorite director. Mm-hmm. Top two favorite directors. OK, um, <laughs> but every movie I just I love. I absolutely love. And he's only doing one more. Just one. That's what he's he says. saying that. But, you know, I, I think, uh, well, we'll see. You know, the, anything can happen in Hollywood. And and it usually does. I was actually saddened to hear about Bruce Willis this week and everything because yeah. I, I love Bruce Willis. I almost made a movie with Bruce, Bruce Willis. I had the rights. Oh, really? I had the rights to an ABC television series from the 1960s called Combat. It was kind of saving Private Ryan every week on ABC. And uh, he was going to play the Vic Morrow role. And uh, it just it just never happened. But uh, it was for a while there. I had a lot of news around that. Steve, on a side note, are you from are you from a military family? No, no. I only ask uh, because you seem drawn to those military movies, wartime movies. I was just curious if that was inspired by family history. No, it was more interest in reading about the war. Growing up in the late 50s and early 60s, the war, World War II was a big subject in comic books and movies and sure. television shows. It, it was just a thing. And I, I read everything I could find about World War II. And it's influenced m- much of the project, many of the projects I've worked on. Rod Serling as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah. much Twilight Zone um, wartime and World War II. And well, he was, a, he was a very damaged man coming out of World War II. He had been horribly traumatized as a paratrooper in the Philippines. And his uh, therapist in Chicago, when he came back from the war, suggested he channel and that's how he got into writing. That's channeling his uh, his his memories of the war, and uh, it was a great uh, it was a great therapeutic thing for him to do. It's unfortunate that it, it takes that type of background to just come up and create some of the most amazing yeah. content creation ideas, TV shows mm-hmm. that you know, the world had ever seen, but you wouldn't have gotten that if he was happy and well-adjusted. Well, the one thing about Rod Serling that was kind of something that didn't last very long was the concept of doing these teleplays where the dialogue is just so good and the characters are so identifiable. And uh, he had a style. His Twilight Zones are very talky. Uh, There's a lot of dialogue, but I think people really embrace that. After the Twilight Zone finished its run, I think um, on the whole, Hollywood and television kind of went to more mindless stories, comedies like Gilligan's Island and Beverly Hillbillies. (laughs) It's it's hardly the Twilight Zone. And then, of course, police procedurals had always been around. I think I think the quality of dialogue that Rod Serling came up with, and to a certain extent also Padashevsky, who who did Network and Marty and Altered States, was a, a kind of a dying breed at that time. We've come back to it a little bit, but I, I, I don't find dialogue today as being particularly memorable in films or in television. I think it services the story, but are you quoting lines from any of these movies? Very rarely. I think more comedy movies and top of my head, the comedies are still probably 10, 15 years old. Yeah. As far as anything new goes no. Yeah. Like a lot of the um, Steve Carell and um, 
So your Judd Apatow movies. Your Judd Apatow movies, for me at least. Um, but I can't really think of any dramas or um, action movies with the exception of It's All About Family. which is the meme for uh fast and furious Um, there you go there you go you know (laughs) speaking of bruce willis i mean die hard i mean asta you know uh, what does he say Uh, yippee that kind of thing i mean uh that's just great dialogue it's just that was a really uh great script and i I love the John McClane character. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, even though the last one was not very good, um, you know, he, just, a, just a memorable characterization. I wonder if, um, I, I didn't see it, but I wonder if the um, issue had come from all the action movies filming or if it was something else. I don't know if they released where it had come from. We don't, we haven't heard anything. We haven't heard anything. I mean, he's done a lot of, uh, I don't know if he's done a lot of his own stunts, but he's certainly been involved around action for most of his career. Uh, who knows? Who knows? Um, we we aren't producing that many new American action heroes. So, you know, it's kind of when we lose a big one like that, it's a big loss. Yeah. You know, it's if you think about it, a lot of the action heroes of late are not Americans. We have Brits and Scottish, Australian and New Zealanders. I mean, you know, it's uh, there's just something they bring to the table, which is just a little bit more interesting than we've been doing on our own. So I, I think we need a, a kind of a, uh, a renaissance of American action heroes. Um, well, I think it's I think it's shifted. I think comic book movies have taken a huge chunk out of your traditional action movie. I mean, unless unless it's the rock in something or an mcu movie i I can't think of an actual action movie like that i don't want to call it old school but that your typical action movie um they're lost they're 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 one one guy who's come on like gangbusters particularly in comedies is ryan Reynolds. i mean ryan is in a lot of things now and he was in uh those uh, i believe those um those my uh, my wife's bodyguard type movies. They oh, yeah. mm-hmm. of them, and they're Hitman's terrific. Bodyguard? Was it Hitman's bodyguard? They Hitman's bodyguard, and now I think it's the wife's Hitman's or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's terrific. I don't know if you've caught this thing on Netflix called The Adam, Adam Project. Project. Yes, we just watched that a couple. Oh, weeks that was ago. a lot of fun. That was, was a lot of fun, and he's also fun in uh, Red Notice, which is another Netflix movie didn't see red we notice see that one that's the def- that's guy, with the, that's with the rock and gal gadot so that's a great cast mm. and obviously all of his deadpool movies third mm-hmm. ones uh either filming or gonna start filming um but who <sighs> just friends forever ago that was a fun little rom-com but an action movie and actually with the adam <laughs> project though would you call that more of an action movie or more of a comedy i mean it's, obviously there's action in it but it's it's an action comedy. I mean, there's, there's enough fusion. action to satisfy the action people, yeah. and there's some comic interplay. I th- I thought it was very inventive. I, I enjoyed it. And uh, television is, I mean, the reason I think a lot of people over forty aren't going to the movies much is they're getting a lot of satisfaction on what's available on television. When a when a good movie, other than a superhero movie, comes out, and you might see more of an older audience out there. Mm-hmm. That and um. Then the the TV shows are really 
kind of replacing movies why do a two-hour movie when you can do a six episode it was interesting hearing you say that showtime had moved away from movies and gone to tv showtime had tremendous success um with some of their tv shows um i can't go with leah shriver but um weeds and um Mm -hmm. i I, there's at least half a dozen uh dexter was wasn't dexter showtime dexter Dexter was showtime Showtime and the l word um, and then yeah, HBO. no, that, that that HBO set the mark early on with their series. And it's also, I guess, more cost effective sometimes to do a limited series. I'm actually developing one right now where uh, I'm partnered with um, Arthur Friedman, who did the Bobby Darren uh, movie Beyond the Sea. And we're trying to uh, take a, a character from history, Audie Murphy, and doing his life story. Audie Murphy was the most decorated soldier in American history. He came out of World War II with 33 medals for bravery. Wow. He's a, a five foot four inch kid who weighed about 125 pounds dripping wet. He was one of our greatest war heroes, came to Hollywood in the 50s and became a movie star. Nobody knows anything about him, but the thing about Audie Murphy, and you saw these beautiful photographs of him and he was on the cover of Life Magazine. He looked like he was about 15 years old. He had severe PTSD and no one knew about it. And he was one of the first people to go to Congress to lobby for soldiers and their PTSD syndrome. So it's a great story. And I think it'd be a great eight part miniseries. David S. Ward, who won the Oscar in 73 for The Sting and later wrote films like Sleepless in Seattle and Major League, he's our writer. So we're very hopeful that we can get this limited series going. We'll That's be looking forward to seeing it if it is because I just I think something like that just sounds wonderful. No, absolutely. And there's so many avenues now for that because everyone's looking for content to keep up with everyone else. There's no uh, limit of of um, streaming services that want to get your money and get your time. And if you've got something good, I, it seems like everybody's got. And I personally something. love anything that is based on true events actual events like even if it's just a little loose but i like to learn so if i can learn something from it while i'm being entertained i think that's great discovery plus yeah i love (laughs) discovery plus it's terrible (laughs) very cool very cool well steve thank you so much for for your time like listening to everything you've been a part of the stuff you're doing it's just so interesting it really is i definitely want to check out your twilight zone book because i'm more of a twilight zone person than i am a bond person but not black mirror but not black mirror no I, I it's different it's different but i definitely want to check that out myself we want to get your links from you so we can put them in our description so we can send people your way again we want people to go listen to steve's podcast too steve, steve rubin saturday, saturday night, night at the, the movies. movies you can find them in all your major platforms Go buy his books and let's take a look out for anything else he's got coming up soon, like this series that I hope we get to see. Where can people go to follow what you're doing? Are you on social media? Do you have a website? Uh, my website is just coming into being. It's still a little bit under construction, but it'll be stephenjayrubin.com. That'll be available soon. And then 
Uh, I'm all over Facebook. I have uh, I publish a classic film review every Saturday under Steve Rubin's Saturday Night at the Movies. Okay. R-U-B-I-N. Uh, I also have pages for the James Bond movie encyclopedia and the Twilight Zone encyclopedia on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, I, I try to maintain a pretty high profile on those channels. Steve, side question. Do you ever use Letterboxd? I do use Letterbox. In fact, I, I take the reviews I publish on Facebook and I move them over to letter, Letterbox each week. Very so I have cool. a pretty good, I've done over a hundred reviews on Letterbox. I always want to do reviews on Letterbox, And then they just, I know there's, there's a formula or a format, if you will, and how, you, how a review should get done. But I tend to only just go on these rants, either positive or negative. Someday I'll learn how to do a, a, a balance. legitimate, balanced <laughs> review. Um, I've not found that. Not yet. yet. Not yet. But it's yeah, okay. there's, always, there's always next time. I just have to be really inspired positively or negatively by a movie uh, to start clicking keys on the keyboard. <laughs> Last one was John Wick 3. And I was not a fan. Oh, that one. Yeah, we were not fans of that. Okay, so I just found you on Facebook for Saturday Night at the Movies. So I'm liking that right now. Perfect. And I just shot you a friend request over there as well. So I can follow and keep up with what you're doing. Because it sounds like a lot. It does sound like a lot. We're definitely interested. Well, thank you. And everybody who's listening, uh, just keep loving movies because we need to support the industry. Uh, yeah, you know, you're, the, the movies, there's always something good to see. You have to find it. Um, and uh, then there's all the old classics. There's no reason why we can't watch the classics. And there, there are literally tens of thousands of movies out there that you haven't seen that are worth seeing. I, I have my, uh, my love of movies uh, completely tied to my morning exercise regi- you know, regimen. So I hop on my elliptical and I put on a movie that happens almost uh, like six days a week. I love that. What a good idea. Oh, that you look is, inspired. That is such a good idea. <laughs> I like that you said, thank you. <laughs> watch old movies, not necessarily remake old movies. Watch them. Enjoy the classics. <laughs> Leave them alone. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, this has been so much fun, guys. I really appreciate all of your enthusiasm as well. No, it's Absolutely. our pleasure. Um, and with that, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. You have a great night, and we will speak again soon, hopefully. That'd be great. Bye.